insights, interviews, and best practices by clinicians for clinicians. Welcome to GE Healthcare's Clinical View Podcast. Hello, and thank you for asking me to speak at a very unusual EdPom conference. Thank you to Ramini and Mike for setting the scene for what I'm about to talk about. So, how do we get a quart into a pipe pot? So for the last three years, I've been the clinical lead for critical care for the GERFT programme. And it's been fascinating. I've learned an awful lot of things. Not everywhere looks like the place that I work in. Not everywhere does the job in the same way I do. And there absolutely is not equity of access to critical care. There's a huge variety of things that change and influence how we work in our critical care units. The culture, the resource that we have to work with, the history of the the space we have, the people who've worked there, and the geography. The geography either of the space in the hospital or the geography of where we are in England and our connections to other places. And one of the most important things I've learned and that you will be aware of is that there are undoubtedly units that are haves and those that are have-nots. Those that have most of the resources you need to deliver an adequate critical care service for that hospital and those that are struggling, that don't have enough beds, enough doctors, enough nurses, and certainly not enough allied health professionals. So I did a lot of deep dive visits and I learned a lot of things. And then something happened. A virus rather deflected the, the project. So we are no longer able to do our deep dives, but I think I've probably seen enough to be pretty sure what it is that we need to be changing in our critical care services and how they can work well with perioperative services. Critical care has a moment in time, a moment when we can make some big changes, a moment of opportunity. We've had one of these before. We had it around about the turn of the century with when we saw the publication of Comprehensive Critical Care. Towards the end of the 1990s, a lot of patients were being transferred between critical care units because there weren't enough beds. There was lots of negative publicity and we had patients dying in the back of ambulances because they couldn't find a bed somewhere. So what happened in the early 2000s was that we got high dependency units, outreach services, trust-wide critical care delivery groups to embed critical care within the hospital service. We got networks which have now developed into operational delivery networks. But most importantly of all, we got 140 million quid. And that made a huge difference to how we can deliver our service. Does critical care work? So both Ramani and Mike have suggested to you 
that admitting patients after surgery to critical care does in fact improve their outcomes. And indeed, we can demonstrate that critical care has produced better outcomes over the last 10 years. So ICNARC relative, frequently has to recalibrate its SMR calculation. Otherwise, we would all have SMRs significantly less than one. So this is data for the last 10 years, which shows that our outcomes are improving. Something interesting to look at is what bed days we've been using for the last 10 years. So the blue lines are the level three bed days. And you can see that there's been very little increase over the last 10 years in those level three days. And that's despite the population of England increasing by 3.3 million people, greater expectations from clinicians and patients. The paler blue line is level two bed days. So we've seen a big increase in those level two bed days over the last 10 years. Does that tell us anything about level three bed days? Now I can't prove this, but I would like to think that by embedding critical care within the service, by having earlier recognition through the use of new scoring and early intervention by bringing patients into a level two bed before they become you know, particularly ill with multi-organ failure, that we are able to reduce the number of level three patients that we have in our critical care units. And that's a benefit to our patients because that means they're cheaper and it means they're more likely to have a better recovery afterwards. So who is in those level two beds? Well, overall, if we look at the patients who are admitted to critical care, more than half of them are patients with acute medical conditions. If we go back 10 years, that was about two thirds of admissions to critical care were from a medical background. But the big increase, uh, and all of these percentages are average across England, there are very large variations between units, is in elective surgical admissions. But we can't get a court into a pint pot and SNAP2 showed us that the only patient level predictor for cancellation was requirement for a critical care bed. So the patients, the surgeons, the anaesthetists get themselves worked up for a big procedure and then we tell them, no, sorry, it can't happen. Quite ridiculously, if we look at the advice in GPIX2, we expect this. We think that it's normal we look at ways of making this service work, accepting that we are going to cancel surgery. Many of you will have watched the absolutely amazing series of hospital programmes. And I vividly remember one where a patient was expecting an esophagectomy and he was brought into the preoperative area and was told on television that there was a patient with an emergency aneurysm coming in from another hospital. If that patient didn't make it, then the esophagectomy patient could have the bed. What a dreadful conversation to have. What a dreadful way 
to be thinking that we are running an adequate service. So how do we make this better? Well, we need more beds. Do we need those beds in critical care? Or do we need to be thinking of something else? So what do many of our patients need postoperatively? Now, some of them will still require critical care. That is absolutely certain. But for many of them having major procedures, the thing they require is more nursing. That is the, absolutely the magic of the job that we do. They also need the availability of someone who can intervene or prescribe if things aren't going as well as they might do. They need the rapid availability of a high level decision maker. Do they need machines? I don't know. They need some, but they certainly don't need to be tied to them 24 hours a day. This needs to be part of an enhanced recovery programme. So patients need to be on their journey towards recovery. So when we developed high dependency units back at the beginning of this century, it was to address a gap, a gap between the ward where patients are almost able to take, mostly able to take themselves to the loo, all of those things, uh, and the intensive care unit where we had the breathing machine and all the other machines. We put high dependency units in the middle, but we still have a gap, a huge gap. High dependency units have two patients to one nurse. When we go to our wards, there are something like six to 10 patients to one nurse. And as I've already said, the magic of critical care is the nursing. We still have a gap. What could we put in that gap? Enhanced care. The Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine produced a document on this just earlier this year. So what is enhanced care? Well, it's an area that does have more nursing, that can observe patients more closely, but it's also a better environment, a more appropriate environment. It's calmer, it's welcoming. You can have your relatives to visit. Single sex space, a place where you can start your recovery, not a place where you can be stressed by 24-hour-a-day noises and all of the scary things that happen in a critical care unit. So what do we need to do to make these enhanced recovery areas work? Well, we need to sort out appropriate governments. How are they going to be organised? Who's going to be the people who look after the patients? Where is it going to be? What are the operational systems? How do we look after the quality? What data are we going to collect? What quality improvement programmes are we going to have? Who's responsible for that? How do we benchmark the activity between different units? As I said earlier, there is huge variability between what happens in different hospitals about how patients are looked after in different hospitals and the spaces they go to after operations or when they're acutely ill medical patients. We need some standardization. 
We need to know that what a patient can expect in one hospital is the same as they can expect somewhere else. So what might this service model look like? Well, we're going to need to decide where these beds are going to go, whether patients have access to toilets, to showers, all of the things that make up a standard ward, but also where they're able to provide, we're able to provide a higher level of care. We need risk management processes. And one of the most important aspects for me of risk management is these areas need to be set up properly. It's going to be hugely tempting for the cash-strapped NHS. We've already spent a huge amount of money on the coronavirus pandemic this year to stick up a sign over the door that says enhanced care area and then not pay attention to how the place is adequately staffed and supported and the patient's care is delivered. It might look like you've solved a problem, but you just create a different set of problems downstream. Who's going to staff it? We certainly need more nurses and there is a bit of a problem. We do know that we have a shortage of 40,000 nurses in the NHS before we started this. But we've had a lot of nurses who've come in to help us in critical care over the last few months. And they've developed a lot of skills and knowledge. And it would be really useful if we could retain some of that and use that in enhanced care areas. Which doctors are going to look after these patients? Is it going to be surgeons? Is it going to be anaesthetists, who I would suggest are really well placed to be part of this perioperative pathway? Or is it going to be critical care physicians? I'm not sure it matters. What the important thing is that everybody knows who's going to be doing it. It's clear who people call when they need to see somebody. One of the things that was very clear in my deep dive visits in critical care is that there is huge variability in the availability of allied health professionals. So physiotherapists in many places are only available five days a week, but patients are expected to recover seven days a week. We don't have availability of occupational therapy, psychology, speech and language therapy, dietetics, pharmacy, in anywhere like as many places as we should have. And that really does need to be addressed. We need to work out how the patient pathway is going to work. How does the patient get in? Do we have a booking system? Is this all arranged from the pre-assessment clinic so it is known how many patients are expecting to get into the enhanced care area each day so we can make sure that we don't create another place for the patient's operation to be cancelled because there's no room at the end. Who's going to be delivering the care while they're in the unit? And what are the standard protocols we've got for keeping the blood pressure up, for supplying oxygen, of those things? What happens if a patient's deteriorating? What does the escalation pathway look like? How do the patients get upgraded to high dependency? And then particularly, how do the patients get out? One of the huge problems that we see in critical care is being able to discharge patients to the ward. More than 60% of patients who are declared fit to leave are still there at four hours and almost a quarter 
are still there the next day. These enhanced care areas will not work at all effectively if we don't have adequate discharge pathways and appropriate patient flow. So what space are we going to use for these enhanced care areas? It could be a bay on a specialty ward, but we do need to bear in mind that a small area with two beds is really difficult to staff because two beds, one nurse, you've got the same ratio as high dependency. You may as well put them in the high dependency unit. A four bedded area, one nurse, that's fine, until she wants to go on a break or to lunch. All of these things need to be worked through. One possibility, which is certainly worth considering, is having a post-op enhanced care ward so that patients of any specialty can go there. And it has um, all of the systems in place to look after it. It makes it easier to nurse. You can have flexible nursing. Or if you have a relatively small hospital, maybe it just needs to be an extra part of critical care. And as well as having an area of one-to-one -one nursing and one-to-two nursing, you also have an area of one-to-four nursing. The optimal way of doing things is going to be something that works for your patients, your service and your hospital. It needs to be worked out as part of a team. So this is a huge opportunity for us. It's an opportunity to avoid cancelled surgery. It's a huge waste of time. It's distressing for the patient. It certainly makes surgeons cross as they march up and down the theatre corridor wondering whether they can start their operation. Uh, it's a waste of time and money. We could do much better. We can get the right patient in the right place. And we can make enhanced care part of the perioperative care pathway for our high-risk surgical patients. So we have another opportunity. The coronavirus has not gone away. We will almost certainly be seeing second, third, more waves. We will almost certainly be seeing a need for critical care spaces where we can, as the waves hit, manage extra coronavirus patients. An opportunity from having an enhanced care post-op ward is when those surges hit, we have a space that's equipped with oxygen, monitoring, that's staffed with people who have enhanced care skills, able to manage oxygen devices, invasive blood pressure monitoring, that know about monitoring unwell patients. So it's an opportunity to, to balance our service in what is going to be an uncertain future. But most of all, this is going to be an opportunity to deliver the best care we can for post-operative surgical patients in England. Top Thank you. Thanks for downloading Top Med Talk. Don't forget to subscribe via your podcatcher. Don't forget to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn 
and YouTube. And also, don't forget, Top Med Talk is the broadcasting arm of EdPom, evidence-based perioptive medicine. We'd love you to find out more about that. If you check out ebpom.org, you can find low prices on some of the conferences we're organizing around the world. Many of them are virtual and don't even involve you leaving your own home. Check out ebpom.org now. Thank you for listening to Clinical View Podcasts, brought to you by GE Healthcare. Expand your view at clinicalview.gehealthcare.com.